hello and welcome to the Be Better podcast where we believe any and every area of your life has a little more potential that you can tap into to change the course and trajectory of your outcomes. My name is Clarissa Parody and I am your host and I have worked and trained in the worlds of business strategy, leadership, and performance. And I am the person who believes in and creates success where there appears to be ceilings. And if that sounds like something that's in your world, your reality, and something you want more of, welcome to the show. It is a great day to change your life. Let's go. Hello. I'm so glad. Mick, it has been a minute. The first time I met you, I was like, this man, I need to have him on my podcast. And we're here. We're finally here. And I'm thrilled and honored that you agreed to join me on your Sunday afternoon and to share some of your experience and wisdom with us. So welcome. Thanks. I appreciate the opportunity. It's a lot of fun. And Mick got to see me navigate I don't know what is happening, <laughs> but, but my microphone isn't working. My keyboard's not working. I don't know what's happening, but thank you for your patience. And it just goes to show that you can still have agility, even when it's like, I swear to God, this normally works. I swear to God, it normally works. So Mick, I'd love to, I, one of the things when we first met, we met at a launch party for right. one of our mutual contacts. And we had a conversation. I'm pretty sure I ignored most of everyone else in that room because you were just so interesting to me and you started telling me and you're also so kind and warm and you started telling me about some of your like how you grew up and I the first thought I had was wow Hmm. people need to hear this this is super powerful so uh I mean maybe it doesn't feel powerful because you lived it but for, uh, for me I was like oh my gosh this man so how about we start at the beginning where really? were you? Well, not at, we can. Okay, we can sure. Let's do that. We'll do decade leaps. So we'll talk like born, where you born, and then what? What are some key moments that brought you here? Um, sure. I was uh, I was born in Zost, Germany. Uh, my father was in the Canadian military, and my mother is German and worked uh, in some clerical job on the on the base. Um, so yes, they met. Um, I was, they got married. I was born a year or so later. Um, my dad got his release from the army. I think just before I was born, um, he then, he and my mom moved to, uh, London, England. My dad wanted to pursue postgraduate or sorry, graduate studies at, uh, university college in London. He wanted to be to study English. That's what his undergrad was. Um, They uh, were really struggling financially. My mom found work, but my dad was a full-time student. So they left me with my Oma, my my mom's mom. uh, And she raised me for a couple of years. Um, Then uh, uh, what happened? We moved to Guelph, Ontario. My dad had been offered uh, a job. I think it was just sort of a sessional position. Um, they, it's a, it was founded as an agricultural school. There's a big vet college there, and uh, this was in the late '60s. They'd uh, created an arts faculty or humanities department. Um, my dad decided he liked it. He took another year. Uh, in England to to get his PhD, um, I I stayed with them 
I stayed with my parents at that point because my dad was getting paid a little bit. Um, my mom was still working and my Oma came and lived with us to make sure I stayed in line. So, uh, yeah, that was my, my, uh, my early childhood. So I did, uh, they don't, I did my first bit of elementary school in London and then we moved to, to Guelph and, uh, that's where I grew up. Excellent. And then fast forward. So you grew up, I have one question. Did you ever learn to speak German? I know you speak a little bit, but is it, did it ever, was it ever a fluent language for you? Yeah, it's still fluent. Um, yeah, it's my, it's my mother tongue. So, um, yeah, my, it would never have occurred to me to speak anything but German to my, to my Oma. Um, you know, she passed away 10 or 15 years ago, but you know, all the growing up, we spoke German at home a lot. Wow. Grandmas are really special people. And it's, and it really says something about your family when you're, when your family can take on responsibilities or, or help each other out when it's, when situations get tough, that says a lot about the character of your family. And I think what a great group of people to grow up with, knowing that they were willing to extend themselves Mm -hmm. when in need. Yeah. And, and, you know, my grandmother just came from a tiny village in the, in the Carpathian mountains. So, you know, today it's Southern Ukraine, uh, but it's, you know, it's close to the border of Hungary and Czechoslovakia. So, you know, it's, uh, the border was fairly fluid for a long time. It's, you know, it's not a very significant part of the world. So the, you know, the lines on the map just got changed from, you know, as, as history unfolded, but, um, uh, it was a very, it was a predominantly German community there. Um, Catherine the Great wanted to get, you know, parts of her country settled so that there'd be, you know, some output. Um, in the same way that Western Canada got settled, people were offered some free land. And as long as they were able to, you know, get out there and clear some of it and build a house and get, you know, a certain amount under cultivation, uh, they were given some more. So, um, you know, that's how we settled the West. And, and that's how, how uh, <clears throat> this German community uh, was created. So when, uh, when World War II started, Hitler wanted to unify all the Germans. So all the, all my, all my Oma's, my, her husband, my Opa, my grandfather, and basically all the young men in the village were were um, conscripted into the German army. Um, the Russians hadn't really entered the war at that point. And uh, um, yeah, that's what happened. And my grandfather never came back. Mm. Um, a couple of her brothers died. Um, yeah, it was, you know, it was a really big convulsion for, for that part of the world. And uh, you know, she and my mom, basically moved from refugee camp to refugee camp. So, you know, they, uh, they stuck together and went through a lot together. So uh, it was kind of natural that she, she stayed with us. That's amazing. And it's, I mean, what a, what a crazy experience for her to have walked through. Yeah. I I can't even like, I mean, obviously I can't imagine I haven't even lived in a war torn area, but it's, I, the thought of not having any sort of stability and the thought of conscription and having no choice 
and mm-hmm. losing the people you love is just like without against their volition. It's just, it's, um, oh, it, ro- it can rock me. And it's, it's really not that far when the world was at war. There are yeah. definitely areas right now that are under some more, but it's not like the whole world isn't necessarily involved in yeah. those wars. And so that is, that is quite the history to come from. So you end up in Guelph and yeah. then at some point you end up in Edmonton. So how did we get from Guelph to Edmonton? Yeah. Well, there was a, there was a, an intervening period where I, I was at university in Kingston, Ontario. Okay. Uh, I went to Royal Military College. Um, um, after that, I went to, um, I, I went reserve entry, so I wasn't obliged to serve in the Canadian army afterward. Uh, I spent a year and a half kind of traipsing around in Europe, um, doing odd jobs and, and, uh, yeah, just sort of seeing the, the sights of the world, I guess, uh, <laughs> you know, maybe I inherited some, some, nomad from my my mom and my oma you know they had to move around a lot and I, I i felt compelled to to see at least some of europe um and i moved back home i was at loose ends um i had a very good friend who had moved to edmonton and liked it and he said hey if you come out here i'm sure i can get you a job you know with the construction company i'm working with so um i ended up here and met the right lady and uh Yes, here, here I here I remain. Here, here you remain, and you're still with the right lady. I am, yeah. It's How long been, has that been? Uh, Thirty-one years. Thirty-one years. That is incredible. Yeah, that is it, incredible. Well, she's an incredible lady. I am. I'm very blessed. I would say that's one thing that's. Uh, I would say from the people I've talked to that have had successful marriages or enduring marriages is that they often talk highly of their partners you know there's a lot of uh, when you look at people who chirp their spouses or sometimes what you see in movies it's you know the complaints about like the, the ladies trying to get away from their husbands like oh we need we need a girl's night or the guy's like oh like my wife doesn't want me to play golf or, and you go into all these things and I'm like you know there's people who actually talk really highly about the people they date or marry and then they say that they're blessed to be with them and I'm like that takes a certain perspective and a certain person it well I guess it takes two people at least in that relationship to have that happen what do you think makes that relationship successful oh boy that's uh I think a lot of things um we have a lot of fun together we laugh together a lot um I think that's vital um we uh we talk a lot. Um, <clears throat> we just, my son got married last weekend, as I, as I mentioned in Victoria. So we drove out. Um, so we had a, <clears throat> you know, we had a long road trip, uh, but you know, we still like each other's company. We still have good conversations together. And I think part of it is we both challenge ourselves professionally. We're not, um, you know, we're, evolving as professionals so there's that gives us plenty to talk about for sure um she's a better talker than i am i think i'm afraid you got the wrong partner on your podcast but uh, <laughs> but, uh yeah and and 
you know, we've got three kids who are who are making their way in the world. So they give us plenty to talk about as well. Excellent. Well, it really sounds like you guys are really great friends. We are. And I think that is, I mean, for those, I've got a lot of listeners who are younger and maybe you're still in dating and chemistry and attraction is one thing, but that enduring connection and that friendship is just so powerful. It's yeah. So and, and I wish I could, I could offer advice and, you know, what do you look for? But I don't know. I just feel like it was dumb luck for me. <laughs> Maybe I, I always offer to people that have um, that it's, it's really sweet that you attribute it to luck, but I look at how many people, the choices they make and the risks they take and the way they behave and the things that they do and the way that they grow. And I'm like, you think life isn't, I don't know if life is that accidental um, like, or it can be, but the series of choices led you to be in that circumstance that allowed you to have a dumb enough luck that you got to meet her. And so I think, you know, you can call it luck and there might be a little bit about some of the choices you made that had you be in the right places with the right people. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Just say thank you. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, you, if you think about it, like how many times I mean, when I was growing up, my parents would make sure you're hanging around with the right crowd. I was a goody two shoes. Like it did not matter. I was afraid to get in trouble. I was afraid every time I got, I got called into the principal's office several times, but for like good things like scholarships and stuff. But every time I was like, did I do something wrong? Am I hanging out with the, the wrong quote unquote wrong kinds of people? And you know, I, it's not like your friend brought you out here. It was like, I think you could have a great job here. I could get you into construction and you don't just, at least for me, I don't offer that to anyone. I offer to people that I know will work hard and do great okay. things. And so it sounds like you did a lot to get you in the right spaces, even if it wasn't on purpose, if it's just maybe who you are. I also love that you said that you, uh, inside your relationship, you, you separately have uh, ways of challenging and growing yourselves as professionals. And I think if you're not challenging yourself, if you're not, it, whether it's in your career or anywhere, if you're not growing, you're probably dying. And so why not pursue growth. And I don't necessarily mean dying as in mortality, but the death of your soul or your spirit or your fire can really take a hit. If you're not, you know, getting to see like who you really are, you don't get to meet you if you don't make those decisions. Okay. So you have three kids, you, you get your first foray into construction and then your career in construction just kind of explodes. And you've touched so many different areas of that industry in the business with real estate and development. Let's talk a little bit about that. Sure. What's your first yeah. job? What happened? <laughs> well, my first construction job was actually, I was around, I was 15. It was just a, you know, summer holidays in high school. And I got a job as a laborer on a, on a framing crew. And, you know, it's, it, uh, it's kind of come, it came and went out of my life a few times. I did some construction work when I lived in Spain and in, in France. Um, <clears throat> so it, it always, it was always something I gravitated to. I'm, I'm just fascinated by the process of creation. Um, you know, I, I, you know, my, my mom has a fine arts degree. My, um, you know, my dad was an, Eng was an English professor. He's an emeritus now, but, um, so, you know, there was always this, uh, I guess, undercurrent of art in my in my upbringing um yeah and it took various forms visual and 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 certainly the 
<clears throat> literature. So it, uh, yeah, it really felt like an artistic outlet for me and it still does, you know, uh, um, I still am thrilled that you know, over the span of a week, something useful and enduring has been created. Uh, and uh, I love playing a role in that. So over the last 10 or 12 years, I suppose, um, <clears throat> I've been involved in, in, in building infill in, in Edmonton. Um, so that means uh, I'm building new houses and, and you know, hopefully new buildings in, uh, in mature neighborhoods. So, you know, these are neighborhoods built in the created and developed in the forties, fifties, sixties. Um, <clears throat> and now they're, they're, they're changing. The housing stock is aging and, and the market has changed and, you know, cities, cities are, are a complicated organism that generally continues to grow. Um, you know, there's plenty of historical examples of cities that have died out, but, um, um, you know, for the rest of my lifetime and probably your lifetime, Edmonton will, will continue to grow. Um, and it's a cool place, you know, and I, I think uh, it offers opportunities and challenges. Um, I think like any city, uh, I think Edmontonians are, are uh, aren't proud enough of, of the city they live in. Um, <clears throat> I think we're actually an extraordinary place and I'm really, I'm really proud of Edmonton and, and, you know, it's not perfect. And, and uh, I don't think any city is, but it's pretty great. What makes you proud about Edmonton? Um, <clears throat> Edmonton is cool without trying to be cool. Um, <clears throat> So sort of geographically, our geographic role is interesting within Canada. Um, we're the most northerly city of, you know, a million plus people um, in North America. Um, <clears throat> I don't know if you've ever looked at a, at a population map, but 80% uh, um, of Canada's, I heard this from uh, former Mayor Don Iveson, I didn't realize this. But 80% um, of Canada's population lives within about 200 kilometers of the U.S. border, right? It's a thin strip of, uh, <clears throat> of population density along that 49th parallel and, and south in Ontario and Quebec. Um, <clears throat> of the 20% who don't live in that thin strip, 80% live in Edmonton and greater Edmonton. So, uh, and of the... 20% of Canada that doesn't live in the thin strip or in the Edmonton area, 80% um, of them are service, service from Edmonton. So, you know, we're, we're kind of a, you know, a, a pivotal spot in, within our country. Um, <clears throat> as, a, as a city, we've got an extraordinary art scene. Um, we're, we've really embrace the notion that, uh, you know, we've got to cope with the growth that we're seeing. So uh, Edmonton is going to, you know, if, if current trends continue and they show every sign of doing so, we'll have 2 million people living here by 2044. So, you know, we're, as a city, 
getting ahead of that and figuring out where we're going to put them all. So um, unlike most North American cities, we've created an urban boundary. So we've, um, we've said, this is it. This is our footprint. This, this is the boundary of our city. We're not going to grow anymore. We're not going to take over any more farmland. Um, we are going to um, try to fit 50% of the people that move here over the next few decades into our existing uh, our existing neighborhoods. So, you know, infill is going to become a more and more important thing in Edmonton. Um, so we need to figure out how we're going to get it done without um, upsetting people who have lived in these neighborhoods for for decades and uh, you know are, are maybe not eager to see them change. I think change can be if you're not ready for it, um, or if you have a if it feels like it's going to disrupt, hurt, or harm you in any way, or make you feel safe or, or unsafe or uncomfortable, I think the resistance change can be just massive. And well, you, you think as a species, you know, we've, we've kind of evolved that way, right? You know, that, that rustling in the bushes, you know, is it a squirrel or is it a, you know, a tiger? You know, our default mode to stay alive is it's got to be a tiger, run for it right? Well, let's not just hang around and see if it's actually a squirrel. So, um, better yeah. safe than sorry, let's right. run. <laughs> <clears throat> so yes, we, we tend, I think, to panic in the, when we see something we don't recognize and are not ready for. Um, and, you know, I think it's important to acknowledge that that's sort of a reaction that's been bred into us over hundreds of generations. Totally. I, yeah, that is, powerful <laughs> i it makes me wonder what like in the since your primary world is the world of infill mm-hmm. what are your the things that i know it's kind of transitioned and changed since you began where did you start with infill what, what were the original reactions and how is it now in comparison it's really cool you know and i i i um Boy, I started a company called Single Tree Builders in 2012. Um, uh, I had a friend who had a lot in uh, uh, the university area. Um, So I built a a house for him and his family. Um, And I'd been interested in info for a while. Um, I lived in mature neighborhoods the whole time I've been in Edmonton. Uh, my wife grew up in the West End. Uh, our first house was actually in Forest Heights because I thought it would be good to keep her huge, energetic, noisy family at arm's length. But uh, as soon as we had a, our first baby, that was, <laughs> we, we changed our minds about that. Yeah. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so, um, yeah, I've, I've, I've liked mature neighborhoods they kind of remind me of the you know the place i grew up in guelph where you know the the streets are lined with big trees and and um um, the lots are a little bigger um and you know europe is like that too right that streetscape streetscape is really important Uh, i spent a lot of my career building in the suburbs and um there's really no tree cover (laughs) you know, it's clearly built for, for cars. And um, I just think 
it doesn't those neighborhoods don't have the same charm um so to me it's an aesthetic an aesthetic choice uh it's, it's what appeals to me um so yeah now you know these neighborhoods are close to downtown um <clears throat> we've realized as a as a global society that we you know we drive too much uh you know that creates a lot of um environmental problems so how do we figure out how to drive less you know this whole notion of the 15 minute neighborhood right you can you should be able to you know, go to a park and a school and buy a beer or a coffee and pick up some groceries in a 15 minute walk or bike ride from your house um, and you know to be fair the the developers of these neighborhoods in the 50s had that idea as well but there just wasn't enough density to sustain many businesses. Um, so, you know, it, this is an experiment. Uh, our city is an ongoing experiment. And uh, now we're thinking about how we can get more density in these neighborhoods, um, hopefully to sustain local businesses that, uh, that we're trying to encourage. And um, also to make our city viable, you know, it's, um, we need more taxpayers per acre to to uh, to pay the bills. Everything's going up. Everything yeah. is growing up. And what I what I also wanted to tie into with your 15 minute neighborhood, I when I was doing my master's, we had this study that we got to read about uh, quality of life. Like, how are you improving your employees' quality of life? And one of the numbers was if you live within 15 minutes of your workplace or maybe it's 20, it was an increase of like 20 to $40,000 a year of quality of life, not necessarily the financial impact, but the quality of life is, is it's as if depending on the city, you've earned 20 to $40,000 more. And I thought, wow, I live really far away from work. <laughs> oh, do you? Um... Well, I chose that for a variety of reasons, but um, I, it was just like, that is something if people know, would they choose to live differently? Well, we're seeing it, we're seeing it played out here, right? Um, you know, I, I've, I've built quite a few so-called skinny houses where I, you know, I buy a lot and demolish the house and subdivide um, <clears throat> and put two houses where there was one. Um, and by far the biggest cost to that is the land. Mm. So <clears throat> when you compare what you get in a skinny house, you know, you pay 700,000 or so, $800,000 for, a, a, you know, a narrow house uh, you know, on a 25 foot wide lot in a, in a neighborhood that's, that's closer in. And you compare that to what you get for that kind of money in, you know, the, the far flung suburbs, you know, it's, you get a lot more house and probably a lot more land. Um, but you also get a lot more commute. Um, you get a lot less uh, interesting things to walk or ride your bike to in 15 minutes. So um, it's tough to quantify and, and people have to make up their own minds, but you know, there has been, there, there continue to be lots of skinny houses getting built. So <clears throat> it's, uh, it's still a market. Um, yeah. I mean, Edmonton has, uh, there was a goal of, of 25% of our, our building permits being issued for infill uh, 
infill projects and and we heated a couple of i guess it was four or five years ago but i think that was kind of fake news because it it coincided with a real downturn in um in what was happening in the new subdivisions um you know they had a big drop in sales um but yeah in, in the last year or so um, we've been hitting that 25 percent wow. so yeah so it's it's there's been an awakening in, awakening in edmonton and uh you know my projects there are often people in the neighborhood who are against it right they they, they view their neighborhood as as perfect and and you know any change must therefore be negative and um a lot of times they just don't understand right i'm i'm building something for another family to move in and and you know it'll be you know another family will have the experience that they had moving in a new house in this neighborhood and uh you know i try i take them for a tour of the house uh when they come by and you know, many of these people are retired and they're curious and a little nervous and and um yeah very often after a, a few conversations they say hey what do you think uh, what do you think you'd want to buy my house for oh my goodness you can turn the tables it just right. goes to show that enrollment and conversation can really soften and, and also provide like inside information to what's going on because I, what i know um my brother-in-law used to live in Forest Terrace Heights, Capilano area, Fulton okay. Place is the specific, there we go. Right. And um, there were, it, it's just recently starting to get permits and people are building houses. Some people are subdividing lots. Some people are just building massive 3,500 square foot homes. Mm -hmm. And there can be an, uh, an us versus them situation that happens like when he was renovating. He just took an old bungalow from like mm -hmm. the original shell of the home. And he hired people who were experts who gave him great advice and he hired the right contractors. And the amount of people that called on his renovation of his bungalow that was maintaining its existing structure was insane. They actually had an investigation by police because they thought it was like a like a, essentially a drug house or whatever and because people were in and out and he's like well, that's called demolition wow. <laughs> like, it's just the people get very um the unknown can be very frightening especially when it's close to home or feel or is by your home yeah and now everyone in the neighborhood is either renovating or subdividing or doing something to create some beautification in a neighborhood that was a little slow to turn into that makeover stage yeah and and it's it's part of the part of the deal you know the infill construction i think residential construction in general i really like it because people are emotionally invested in what you're building for them um you know and that that can be good news and bad news you know if, uh, um you know the <clears throat> the hardwood flooring that they picked suddenly you know gets delayed a couple of months you know they they get upset um you know if you're building someone a donut shop they're just grumpy about how long it takes and how much it costs right then they don't give you a hug when it's all done so yeah i i, I like that emotional investment in in residential projects that's so i i think it's really powerful i have been in real estate now for i don't even know 12 years 
-hmm. and I've, I've done everything from commercial to like medium density multifam to high density multifam to single density or to like single family. And so I get to see the spectrum and I think it's the single biggest purchase most people will ever make. I mean, there are other people who will buy other things, but for the most part, your $800,000, $500,000, $300,000 home is, is quite possibly the largest purchase you are ever going to make. And it's not that you're just going there to lay your head. Mm -hmm. It's it's where you're going every day. It's going to be your respite, your reprieve, your, where you raise your family or your fur babies or whatever. And so there is so much more to it and it can be so such a sensitive and also such a celebratory experience. Yeah. I have questions about infills. So I, I live in suburbia. It is, there's a, an HOA. It's a cookie cutter. I know exactly when I transition to a new developer's area of the subdivision uh, based on architectural rules, standards, so-called controls. Yeah. So-called controls. And yeah. like what I can really appreciate about um, my neighborhood is that, you know, it, there's someone looking after the community, like there's someone watching so that if someone's fence doesn't get painted, someone says something hmm. and it's done and it's done. But what I don't love about my neighborhood is that I, I could turn right twice and not know I'm on a different street. Yeah. And what I love about infill neighborhoods is that they don't necessarily have HOAs and you get these beautiful streetscapes, as you had mentioned, with the massive trees and the boulevards and the parks that are nearby, they're developed in the communities that have actual ice rinks and there's variety when you walk. Yeah. And so I'm just curious, you said you are, you love infill and like, that's what I love about infill. I'd love to hear more about your thoughts about what you love about infill. Yeah. I, I love the architectural variety. Um, mm. <clears throat> You know, and, and there's there's plenty of negative talk about, you know, how you're destroying the character of the neighborhood. And I don't even know what that means. You know, I've asked many people, what, how, can you quantify the character of the neighborhood? And, and that includes, you know, people in the planning department at the city. And, you know, what I get back is, you know, mature trees and, and walkable streets. And I'm, you know, I'm, I don't want to change any of that. I value that at least as much as other people. That's why I want to build in these neighborhoods. So, um, yeah, I, I don't think the character of a neighborhood is really anything to do with houses. Um, I also think that it changes over time, right? Um, you know, how, how much of the character of the neighborhood is related to the people who live in it? Um, you know, my neighborhood of Grosvenor, its character has changed a great deal since the 60s and 70s when it was full of young families. You know, our, our <clears throat> um, you know, the, the population of school-aged children in our neighborhood is probably 50% of what it was in the, in the, in the 70s. And, and uh, you know, in other neighborhoods, it's worse and, and the, the city's closing the schools. You know, so that's horrible, right? Yeah. Uh, what, what happens to a neighborhood after you close the local school, the local elementary school? So, you know, we need to think carefully about um, what we're doing to keep our neighborhoods alive and viable. Um, <clears throat> we need to 
find ways to encourage young families to move in. And, and that's sort of the next, the next chapter of infill, I think, in Edmonton is, is um, the so-called missing middle. I don't know if you're familiar with that term, but, um, um, and it's true of most cities in North America. We've got uh, so many neighborhoods, the, 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 the first ring suburbs, you know, the suburbs that are close to downtown, and they're almost all single family houses. And maybe there's a high rise on a busy corner, but that's kind of it for variety. There's very little in terms of row housing or, or um, low rise condo type buildings. Um, there are some in some areas, but you know, they're pretty old and dilapidated now. So, <clears throat> you know, the, as I said earlier, the, the most expensive ingredient to infill is the land. So if we're going to find ways to move young families and, and you know, new Canadians into these neighborhoods um, just to create a, a durable social fabric um, by having a cross section of, of people, we, um, we need to create different build forms to accommodate them. So, um, and it, you know, it also relates to number of taxpayers per per acre to hopefully pay into replacing roads and street lights and and school renovations and all the other things that uh, need to happen to these neighborhoods that have been around for 50 years and are starting to see some of that hard infrastructure uh, need re replacing and upgrading. I also love, love the idea when you have that diversity in a neighborhood, you can essentially live in that community your whole life. And I, I can speak for my grandparents who have now passed, hmm. but their commitment was to try to stay in the same area so that they could see their friends. So yeah. as their lives grew, evolved and changed, they didn't necessarily want to leave. And at one point, um, my grandparents hit the age where most of their friends in their neighborhood had passed and they, their next location they chose to live was close to where family was. So what decided for them their location was proximity to people they care about. And mm -hmm. if we focused on communities and creating a space where you could be in connection with real life, live people, yeah, people in your the streets, people that you, <laughs> Mr. Rogers, the people that you meet each day, yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm like that, what what difference could that make? I, uh, we, ha we had a family like lot. And when you're driving in, people would always wave. I don't, that you wave at someone in my, my, my beautiful suburban neighborhood. Uh, people are like, why, why are you waving at me? Mm -hmm. And I, and I'm like that we could really shift the culture of how neighborhoods are if you had consistency and exposure. Cause what we know from a psychological perspective is exposure often leads to familiarity and familiarity often leads to feeling like you like, and or appreciate something. Uh, and that's why we have nostalgia too. So we can yeah. often glorify things from the past that maybe weren't that great, but we're like, oh, we have sentiment around it. So that's really fascinating to me. There was a there was a political campaign focused on that uh, on that very idea not so long ago, south of the really? border. Yeah, you may have heard about that. I, I feel like I try to keep my nose out of politics and into neuroscience. Okay. Well, <laughs> you've probably heard about Make America Great Again, right? Oh, I There's did. Sort of, I, I can't avoid that one. That's everywhere. <laughs> this, this artificial nostalgia that uh, it was never really defined, but it sure got a lot of buy-in. You know what I will say? If you're going to do anything, uh, whether you want to divide or unify a community, if you center it on emotion, 
you will successfully achieve your objective. Mm. And so it's like, really, how are you just going to, how are you going to use that? And so much like when we talked earlier about infills and people are like, oh, like, I don't like that change in my neighborhood. We want to keep this neighborhood the way it was. It was so good. Do you remember the fifties and sixties when we were growing up our kids and we we're raising our children? And it's like, well, that was great but you now have potholes every five inches. Yeah. <laughs> so and we need to kids, do something about that. Those kids you raised live on the, you know, <laughs> live in the new subdivisions because they can't afford to buy a house here and they, they mm-hmm. don't want to buy a 1950s house and try and, and renovate it because- Those are busy. old pipes. <laughs> yeah, they're busy. <laughs> those are really old pipes. Yeah. I, yeah, I think when I would, I, I think about my home buying experience and at the time I was, 28 and I had a little nest egg uh, saved and I, I, in my mind, the absolute right decision was to buy a home. I mean, I don't know if I'd replicate that decision now. I'd probably invest in an Airbnb now that I know what I know. Uh, But at the time that wasn't a thing. So, or it wasn't nearly as popular as it is now, but when I went to buy my home, there was a couple things that had to happen is I had to be able to afford it. And it also had to afford me the kind of lifestyle I wanted, which right. for me, I really value being outside. I value being in nature and make, you're going to love this nostalgically from a childhood. When I, I remember my grandpa uh, taking us out in his Thunderbird okay. and we drive on country roads that were just outside. Cause at that time, new McLeod was being developed okay. in Edmonton. And there's all these country roads. And I was like, I just want to be near country roads. And so oh. I stepped into this home, which is what the home I'm currently in. I was like, it has a west-facing backyard. Perfect. And then I just kind of explored the neighborhood. I was like, there's country roads, like a three-minute walk. And so my decision was largely nostalgic, possibly not the best financial decision I've made, but it was the decision that I made. How long have have you lived there? So long. It's so crazy. Uh, Eight years. Oh, okay. So you you must like it. You would have moved by now. uh, I can tell you, I, if I ever move, I am just paying someone to do all of it for me. I'm, I absolutely cannot handle (laughs) moving. So I will do a lot to not move. That being said, um, since I have moved so much, my family has moved to the West end. And so everyone is less than 10 minutes from me for the most part, which is a huge incentive, much like that aging in place thing that we talked about I can really yeah. see myself staying longer now because yeah. everything I love is right here yeah really cool. <clears throat> um you know and that aging in place thing is is another element I think of uh, of the missing middle you know the infill that we want to see you know what happens to people who have you know raised their kids and they've lived in the same house for 30 or 40 years and now you know, circumstances have changed, you know, maybe uh, they're retired and they spend six months a year in Palm Springs, you know, do they really want to have a house in Edmonton? Maybe they're done with shoveling snow. They're right. like, you know, had maybe, enough. They're, maybe they've got, you know, new knees and, you know, they can't push a lawnmower or a snow shovel the way they used to. And, and uh, you know, it's not, it's not something they enjoy anymore. So, you know, can we not build them, you know, a, a, sp- a place in a building where they don't have to do that, um, but they can still be in in the neighborhood that you know where they they know where they know people and they know where the stores are and they know how to get around. Um, you know, I don't like the idea of 
packing them all together in some large facility and and uh i don't think i'd like that my parents don't want to do that they're in their 80s and and um it would be easier on me if they did um <clears throat> but i don't blame them for not wanting to i really don't either i that's why i look at like even some neighborhoods there's some just outside of laurier there's a, a a retirement and a care, a primary care facility yeah, called Canterbury, Canterbury Court. Court. Yeah. yeah. And I'm thinking, wow, you know, what a clever way of taking a beautiful neighborhood with easy access to downtown, all these resources and amenities, close to medical, close to all these things that you need as a person most of the time, and especially as you near end of life. And, and how much more of, I think, ease and proximity really just drive quality of life in so many ways when you have access to resources it's easy to get there you are just more likely to have a very high or higher quality of life granted if you're in primary care your life is probably not exactly where it used to be at one point but why why not take away as many barriers as possible well and the other interesting thing about Canterbury Court and and I don't know if this is if there's anything to this but it's right across the street from an elementary school and there's a little daycare right by there. So, you know, I, I, I've heard of, of developments where they've got seniors in the same building as a daycare and they come down and, and hang out with the little kids, you know, and everybody wins, right? The, the seniors get to help and they get to be around these cute little kids who now have this sort of surrogate grandma or grandpa um, that they hang out with you know a couple of days a week so uh, yeah I think it's a fantastic idea and it, it I've done a little bit of reading about the blue zones do you know about the blue zones where yeah, where people have longevity yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. and and you they know share. there's right there's some common threads you know and they they stay close to their family so there's you know this sort of multi-generational living the way that you know you were describing with your grandparents being close by and and you know these people are useful right into their you know right to the end of their life right they're they're helping out in the garden and they're helping raise the kids and taking them to you know picking them up at school and 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 um you know and they're active it keeps them active physically so um it ticks so many boxes right I, i think this um this inclination we had or this experiment of, of trying to segregate everything in our city. So we keep, you know, keep the old people over here and we keep the shopping over there and, and we keep, uh, you know, the education in this corner and, you know, you can't really do anything without getting into your car. Yeah. And I, there's a danger with compartmentalizing life. Cause it, this is one thing I talk often about with my team is that, you know, we talk about work-life balance, but the truth, I don't know if that exists because it's still me, whether I have something that goes wrong at home or something that goes wrong at the office, I often can't cut it off. Like my, I mean, not just psychologically, but at a chemical level in your body, if you're stressed out in one area, you step inside of a new door. It's not like that chemical response in your body stops. That's not what happens. And so if we mm-hmm. start seeing that you're a human for what it is, which isn't an, a community-based organism I think we approach things a little differently and one I was listening to a podcast yesterday and the 
it was a doctor who has a, he started his own research lab and he was talking with some of the research he was doing. And what he said really resonated with this conversation. Nature does not create waste. Hmm. There's nothing that we do. Like nature is so good at not being wasteful that everything has a purpose. Like even when leaves decay, there's a purpose. And so for me, I realized there's a lot in life right now that has even longevity happen in a different way for us. I know that there's advancements. I know there's technology. I know all of that. And nature doesn't create waste. So just because we have, we have access to longevity, which there's evidence that there's other times in human history where we did have longevity, just depending on the environment. Uh, if, if we stop seeing people who are, I don't know, retired in their eighties as like, Oh, just, they're just let them drift off or fade into the sunset. Let them just sit and enjoy life. They can sit and enjoy life, but they can sit and enjoy life and have tea with the kindergartners. There's no such thing as a waste of life. If it's still living, it's still purposeful. So why not integrate it? Why, why do we need to separate everything? It's a very reductionist approach and nothing, you can't take out a kidney and think your body is going to work the same way. So why don't we look at communities, families, how we plan our cities in the same way? Cause it's mm-hmm. just, it's just a magnification of us in, in a lot of ways. Yeah, that's great. It was just my thought from listening yeah. to a medical podcast yesterday. You know, the things I do in my spare time, I'm uh, I'm currently having a little master bedroom makeover oh. in my, my primary suite and I'm doing everything just interior designers would tell you not to. So I have podcasts on to keep me going. And that was what I learned yesterday. So okay. for those of you wondering, I painted a wall black. We're going to see how I feel about it in three weeks. Um, but right now it feels cool. It feels nifty. All right. Excellent. Okay. So I want to go back to some of the, uh, I love that we had all this conversation. That was really exciting for me. Hmm. I do have some questions about things that really defined your life. Like you have had some growth. You started your own company. You're now working for someone else. Again, you've had some shifts in and out. What do you think were some of your like, uh, like key critical moments of definition in your life that you're like, that changed everything for me. Um, boy, As a young person, I think going to Royal Military College changed a lot of things for me. Um, you know, I, it, it was really my first introduction to the concept of servant leadership. Um, the, the Canadian military, and I think probably military militaries everywhere, put a very strong focus on leadership. Um, you know, because they, you know, it's kind of an acknowledgement that you're going to be putting people in really adverse circumstances and you need them to do what they have to do. Uh, <clears throat> and you can't, you know, you can't put a price tag on it. You can't say, I'll pay you, you know, X number of dollars more if you take that hill, um, <clears throat> uh, storm that position. So yeah, you need to create a bond between the people on in the unit so that they all acknowledge a shared goal and, and, and are willing to, to make sacrifices if they need to. Um, so it's really powerful and, and, uh, you know, I'll, I've never forgotten it. And, and I, I, um, it definitely had a, an impact impact on the way I view the world. Um, and on the way I, I try to create the environment I work in. 
so that was definitely uh, pivotal for me. I I lived in Europe for a year and a half, just on my own, doing you know whatever kind of came came my way, and you know, whatever I needed to do to <clears throat> to buy groceries or uh, put a roof over my head. And it was um, a really great exercise in in self reliance. Um, I'm I'm fortunate to be good at languages. I think when you're a little kid and you get wired for a second language, um, it's easier to learn others. So uh, I spoke pretty decent French when I uh, uh, just through high school and, and you know the military is big on teaching officers French. So I got French training at RMC as well. So yeah, I spoke good French and I could, you know, I figured out how to how to get a job and find a, an apartment and so on. Um, uh, but that was after I, I lived in Spain and I didn't speak any Spanish, but you know, fortunately I, it, it's similar in structure to French. And I, I bought a dictionary and uh, the newspaper and, and I'd go through it and, and uh, try and figure it out. And then I bought a grammar book and uh, it, it, it came to me, you know, with with a bit of effort and and practice and and some uh, willingness to take risks and and speak to Spanish people, <laughs> and uh, I, you know, and I, I I still I still bust it out today when I can. Um, <clears throat> there's a lot of Spanish speaking people in the trades, French speaking people too, so. Um, yeah, I love that. I, I, I learned a lot about myself and um, uh, I learned a lot about, I think humans, you know, <laughs> we're, we're not all that different. Um, they're, um, you know, we all care about the same big things, not necessarily the same little things, but uh, yeah, that's, that was good. That was another valuable element of RMC, you know, the, I was thrown together with people from all over, all over Canada. I don't think I'd ever met anyone from Newfoundland until I ended up, you know, having a roommate from there in, in, in uh, basic training. So, um, <clears throat> you know, it, reflecting back, it's, I think perhaps an argument for conscription, um, you know, Germany did it for years, right? You had to serve France did too. Um, up until probably the 90s, they stopped doing it. But, uh, you know, as a young person, you had an obligation to serve in uniform or in some kind of administrative role if you were, um, you know, if your conscience prohibited you from, from military service. But, um, you know, we live in a vast and varied country. And, and you know, if you go to France, you'll find that the people in the South don't totally understand the people in the north or, or the people who live in Paris think they're the center of the universe and and uh, <clears throat> you know the the people in Marseille are roofs and and you know it, it uh, <clears throat> I think uh, being thrown together within a often difficult circumstances forces you to acknowledge that you know we're kind of in this for the same reasons and, and we have the same values mostly. Yeah, I, 
I think I found that very valuable. I like the construction business because it's so uh, global. You know, there's, I can talk to a carpenter from Argentina or a carpenter from England and, and um, you know, we all understand how to build with wood. So uh, yeah, it's, I don't know, I guess it was my upbringing that, that probably led me to be interested in, in the way people in other parts of the world operate. Um, and it continues to be valuable to me. It's so interesting. I love that you have some servant leadership where, you know, you lead in, in service of others. For those of you who aren't familiar with servant leadership, that is very one, a simple one-liner for what servant leadership looks like. But also that that willingness, it sounds like you were really resourceful when it came to being in different countries and learning languages and figuring out that, you know, there is a red thread that connects humanity and we do care a lot about the same things and there's more unity than there is difference. Yeah. I, I had a few, I had some hard times, you know, where I, you know, I, I got mugged and I had no money and I had to, you know, find work and I, you know, I'd, I'd raid, I was in southern spain so there was plenty of citrus orchards around that i could raid to have something to eat but um yeah people helped me out and um they didn't have to right but generally people are kind and will help other people who need a hand and i see it i see it every day in edmonton right i love that i couple of harder hitting questions you've got those three things that were like defining for you what is a moment of adversity that you were like wow wow that was really hard and I wouldn't change that I went through it um I don't really I think looking back, it doesn't feel like anything's been that hard. Um, I, I've come through it all. Um, uh, the army kind of goes out of its way to make life hard for you. <laughs> I, uh, I, uh, I remember coming back from an exercise. We'd been out in the woods for a week or so, you know, tired and filthy and, and, uh, you know, we, the minute we got back, we weren't allowed to go back to the barracks and take it easy. We had to clean up all the, all the tents and the, uh, the weapons and, you know, the, the tools we'd use to dig trenches to all that kind of menial stuff got done immediately. Uh, <clears throat> So we finally got that done and got cleaned up and went to the mess and and uh, got fed and and started drinking. Um, you know, we were young men, so we were drinking a lot, too much probably. And then, uh, uh, boy, three o'clock in the morning, they roasted us all out of bed. Um, I was still drunk, and uh, <laughs> most of us were and uh sent us back out into the woods and you know we had to scramble into our uniforms and grab our 
our kit and and uh, <clears throat> you know it didn't occur to me at the time but uh, now you know looking back I see why they made us get everything all cleaned up because uh, they were going to send us back out um, so yeah we god it's three or four in the morning we're driving down a dark road and suddenly you know we get attacked you know we get ambushed so we have to you know pile out of the truck and <laughs> and uh i mean this was all of course exercise right this wasn't an actual ambush this wasn't a war no and uh <clears throat> yeah so i mean we so we got ambushed and and uh then they threw some tear gas at us so um I don't know if you've ever put on a gas mask, but it's kind of hard to breathe. It kind of reminds me of the, have you ever done a VO2 max? I've test? done one once. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I got to try on the mask. I didn't have to do the test. Yeah. It's that horrible. looked awful. <laughs> yeah. And a, a, a gas mask is like that too. And it, um, mine was brand new. So it really, it, it, it felt like I stuck my face into a, a new tire and, oh. um, you know, I'm getting the waves of nausea and, and uh, um, <clears throat> it, uh, it had just finished raining. So I'm lying in a ditch that's half full of water and, and, uh, and I'm really starting to feel sick. And of course, then I throw up in my gas mask and I, I can't really pull it off my face because oh. there's still lots of tear gas around. So yes, that was, um, that was a dark, uh, that was a dark, a dark time. That was um, not a good day. <laughs> no, it's a good story now, right? It's a but, great uh, story now, man. Yeah. Like, and the only thing that made me feel better, and I don't know what this says about me as a person, but, um, um, you know, there's a guy in my platoon who, uh, you know, he was, I don't know, 20 meters or so away from me in the same ditch, and I knew he had hemorrhoids. So I, he, he must have been, he was hurting worse than me. Sometimes knowing, uh, comparison can be the thief of joy for sure, but also sometimes it can be a source of relief being like, well, yes, my life suffering sucks, is relative. but it doesn't suck as bad as his life. That's <laughs> real. It's all relative. And there's also <clears throat> like something to remember, even in, in your workforce now is like, it's stress is relative. Like I go into boardrooms and I'm like, this is the worst day of my life. I'm like, but you know, I mean, okay. Yeah. It's absolutely stressful. And yes. I have cortisol coursing through my veins, but relative to the experiences of others, it's pretty cushy. Right. That boardroom battle wasn't so bad. I, when I lived in, in France, uh, I lived, part of the time I was in, in the South in a, in a town called Bergerac. I don't know if you've ever heard of Cyrano de Bergerac. The I have not. Very famous play about this very charming guy with a huge nose. Anyway, I recommend it. Okay. Um, so that's where he was from, and it was—it's um, <clears throat> a beautiful part of the world. And I got a job on a construction crew, and we were building uh, a big drive-in cooler and freezer uh, at a an abattoir, a, a slaughterhouse. So this was in July, um, <clears throat> and it was, you know, low or high twenties, low thirties all the time um <clears throat> and you know this you can i don't know the smells of an abattoir are like a are like a farm times 10 um <clears throat> and you know flies like the old testament like it was i've never seen 
way clouds of flies like that before or since. <clears throat> anyway, I was kind of the the young guy on the crew. So these um these big coolers, you know, you could drive a forklift into them and and you know hang the slabs of beef and pork and whatnot in them. <clears throat> they were made out of these sandwich panels that were uh, stainless steel sheets on the outside and insulation on the inside. And they would tongue and groove together um, and then get, they'd get fastened with rivets and, and we'd you know, build four walls and, uh, and then put the roof, the insulated roof panels on top. So one day my job was to crawl up onto the top of those roof panels um, you know, and this was inside an existing structure. So at the, so the ceiling height, you know, the headroom was, it, it kind of went from maybe 18 inches to maybe four feet. Uh, and it was a corrugated metal roof. So it was sweltering up there. It must've been 50 degrees. I could hardly breathe. And it was dusty and there was lots of bird shit. And uh, yeah, I had to squirt the, the, the foam, the spray foam stuff to seal the, the the joints between the panels and i don't know i, I don't think i'd ever been so miserable um <clears throat> you oh know kind God. of crawling up and down this this ceiling and uh squirting foam between the panels and then i got sort of to one edge <clears throat> and i could look across a hallway uh within the within the plant and there was a window and there was a guy inside this little room and his job was to clean out the cow stomachs. So he had a, a garden hose going and he had this rubber outfit on and, you know, he was pulling the poop out of these cow stomachs. He was, you know, shoulder deep in it and oh spraying everywhere. And I thought, I've got a great job. I, my job I, is I love great. my job now. Best job of my life. Yeah. That is, for those of you who are listening, if you could have seen the contortion my face went through. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh, I can't, you know what, I've had some, my life has been great. I have no complaints. <laughs> so I don't know if those count as formative moments, but they, they did leave well, an impression on me. I think what I, I think when things leave an impression on you, it is formative. And I, how can it not be? How can it not be even transformational? Because you look at it and you're like, wow it just kind of grounds you in reality a little bit, like at least that current reality and that current experience. And man, oh man, I yeah. have, I did not know that's what happened when they clean things out. Yum. I know. And I, to this day, I have no idea what they would do with that. Like, I don't know why they wouldn't just toss maybe, it in the bin. But, but people but... use tripe, don't they? Like, yeah, I guess that maybe that's stuff? what it is. I don't know. I, and cows have what six stomachs or seven stomachs? There's not one. There's more than one. <clears throat> That's yeah. all I know. I was like, because they're rumin, they're ruminators. 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 I remember the first time I learned what cow cud was. I was my grandpa also was a farmer uh, or grew up on a farm, and I thought this is. I love to think that I am more, um, more outdoorsy than I am city. And then mm -hmm. when I hear stories from the farm and I say, wow, that's a nice lie I've told to myself. <laughs> yeah. That's a nice lie I've told to myself. I am not, I am not. I'd like to be, I'd like to think I could be. I don't know if I can be though. Yeah. That's probably not in the cards. I like my road bike. I like running water. I like central heating. 
I mm. like that. I step onto my backyard and there's no cow patties anywhere. Right. Yeah. Or, or mysterious animals. <laughs> yeah, I know. Or uh, mysterious animal byproducts. Okay. So this is a memory ingrained into my head. Mm -hmm. I, I growing up, we had um, this huge backyard. It was, we lived in a bungalow. It was, I don't even know when it was built, probably like the sixties or the seventies. And this backyard was just massive. It was, per, I would say it was like at least 50, 60, 75 feet wide. It was like, I mean, also I was a small child. It may have just felt large, but it felt large. And one year the snow melts and there had been a dog that had gone missing in our neighborhood. And when the snow melts, what was revealed was like a rib cage and a skull that was unquestionably oh. that dog unquestionably oh, like, at least in my mind it was unquestionably that dog i did yeah. not do any dna testing i cannot confirm it <laughs> uh but i i think i bold was bold enough to pick it up and be like dad what's this and he's like put that down <laughs> it's loaded in germs what are you doing i was like well because it's mostly decayed carcass at this time it's like some mm. dried stuff like obviously other animals had gotten to it like birds or whatever in the winter like magpies well, they're very opportunistic in their consumption. They would have no judgment against that. And so I was like, hey, mm, I, that's, that's the only time I felt an unexpected specimen <laughs> in my city living experience. And I think I'm okay with it being the only one ever. Yeah, clearly left a mark though. <laughs> I, I know exactly where it was in the backyard. I know exactly, I, I was floored, uh, made me make sure that any animal we ever owned stayed in our four walls. <laughs> okay. It was, it was not traumatizing, but it was, um, it was impactful. Mm. It was impactful. Okay. Well, we're nearing the end and I want to make sure we touch on some other things before we go through. So you've been through a bunch of different things. Like you've had some of the craziest jobs I've heard. You've mm. made massive moves. You started your own company. You're now the president. Is it the president of idea or is that still you? Um, no, not anymore. I'm, I'm, I was the president. I'm still on the board. I'm the chair of the infrastructure committee. So, you know, my interest in the missing middle, uh, hopefully this won't be too long a story, but uh, <clears throat> um, uh, a friend of mine were, and I tied up a lot, a big lot in Glenora. <clears throat> the intention was to build uh a 12 unit condo for, you know, people exactly as I described earlier in our conversation, you know, people who have lived in Glenora uh, all their lives, raised their kids there. And now they, for whatever reason, don't want to have a house anymore, uh, but they want to stay in Glenora. <clears throat> um, and these were going to be large suites, you know, uh, patterned after the ones that I'd, I've seen in Paris and, and big cities in Germany, you know, with, with tall ceilings and big windows and, and, you know, beautifully finished. Um, Cause I haven't seen anything like that really in Edmonton. And uh, I think people would appreciate it. So uh, I figured Glenora would be tough. You know, I knew it was tough territory for anything infill and now, you know, something multifamily. Uh, I was probably looking at a bit of a fight uh, so during the due diligence period, I, I arranged a meeting with the president and civics director of the community league. Uh, and they said, wow, this is fantastic. You know, we've had all kinds of people in our, uh, in Glenora asking when we're going to get a project like this. 
So that was a huge relief. Um, the lot was about 300 meters away from a future LRT stop. Um, <clears throat> it was at, basically at the end of a dead end street um, so that the only shadow it would cast would be kind of on a treed area to the north and then onto the road and uh, to the east, I guess when the West Sun came up. So, um, you know, I wasn't shading anybody's you know, tomato patch um, in their yard. So, you know, it, it was it was a solid project. What I found out though from EPCOR was because I was increasing the density, um, there was an automatic requirement to increase fire hydrant coverage. Um, and it wasn't completely unexpected, but what I what I didn't expect was that uh, the water lines in the area were were undersized. So in order to get the required amount of water pressure to the hydrant, I had to build a big loop um, <clears throat> to feed it. So it, it meant something like 230 meters of water main, which means you know digging up all that road and you know putting the water main in and uh, connecting it to the hydrant and then fixing all that road it was going to be about a seven hundred thousand dollar bill uh which would have you know wiped out about three quarters of the profit that i was expecting on this building and and so yes i, I wasn't willing to go ahead and do all that work for epcor's sake um <clears throat> so yeah i canceled the the land purchase but um it really Put a bee in my bonnet, uh, and you know I can. I found an opportunity to complain to city council, uh, and from there, uh, idea um, uh, got together with EPCOR, and we, um, you know, over the course of a couple of years, have created a cost share program for projects like this. The city has acknowledged that we need these missing middle projects. Um, there are um, infrastructure obstacles that need to be addressed somehow. Um, so yeah, now we're, we, we've had sort of the preliminary pilot project. Uh, EPCOR uh, just embarked on a, you know, a new sort of funding cycle. They, they, they do, basically it's a rate review they do every four years or so. So this most recent one, uh, they got $20 million of funding to help out with these sorts of projects. So it's not unlimited. Uh, you still have to make an application and there's a scorecard um, uh, that your project gets judged on. Um, and there's a few different, there's a half a dozen or, or so <clears throat> uh, boxes that need to get ticked on the scorecard. But yeah, now it's not fully on the, on the developer to pay for and 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 this is sort of a something that's come out of the infill discussion right it it uh it wasn't anything anyone had thought about it wasn't purposely done this way but uh we've created policies for greenfield development or high rises right so if i if i'm building a 200 unit building and you know there's a seven hundred thousand dollar bill well maybe i can swing it you know maybe I need to go to 220 units or something and, and it doesn't destroy the pro forma, um, <clears throat> but a 12 unit building, there's just no way. Um, no, and this kind of initiative allows 
us because it serves everyone because ultimately Epcor gets the money in mm-hmm. a lot of ways because they're going to be serviced. We pay Epcor for water, hydro, whatever else. But it, to lay that all on the developer when what mm-hmm. it is not just doing is it's not just serving the developer, it's serving the government, it's serving the community. Mm-hmm. You've got increased taxpayer density. You've got people who are able to age in place and you also have more people asking for services that are getting paid for anyways. So why isn't why isn't it a cost share program? Yeah, exactly. And so I think what a great approach uh, so that a lot of needs get met that maybe mm-hmm. were previously disregarded because the bill is just so big. Yeah, and you know this is a, an example of, of how Edmonton is is really in the forefront of figuring these things out, you know, as in the forefront of North America and figuring these things out, right? We've got a city, a city council and a water utility um, and, you know, Epcor Electric, you know, it, it's governed by the province, but, um, you know, they're also engaging with, with idea and with developers, um, uh, the Canadian Home Builders Association, uh, <clears throat> because you know we're all pointing out, hey, you know, our city's changing. We need ways to to change the infrastructure to accommodate it. Uh, and they're at the table with us. They're trying to figure it out with us, and uh, that's pretty cool. Which is really helpful, especially because you mentioned that one of their goals earlier was that growth by twenty forty four to be a two plus million city two plus million person say, okay, so you have that goal, but how are you supporting the people who are helping build that, in, that infrastructure, the buildings, the places and the spaces, how yeah. are you working with them? And I think that, I mean, that was news to me in this conversation. So I think that's, that is something to be proud of. Go right. Edmonton. Good yeah. job. <laughs> yeah. I also huge, for those of you who don't live in Edmonton that are listening, Edmonton also has, I believe it's the largest connected green belt in North America. The amount of green space that our River Valley occupies, you can go from almost Devon <laughs> to yeah. Edmonton, so the northeast so, version of Edmonton on a paved trail. Yeah, actually, All of it. to Fort Saskatchewan. Fort Saskatchewan. Right oh yeah, that's yeah. true. Yeah. I yeah, just my, didn't go my that wife far. Is on the board, my wife is on the board of the River Valley Alliance, and there's still a few little patches in there that, you know, it's not totally connected, but it's almost there and it will be, you know, I think in the next couple of years. So yeah, it's extraordinary. It's something like 10 times the size of Central Park. It's wild. And here's another little interesting, sorry, I'm, I'm nerding out here about, uh, I love it. <laughs> about urban planning, but um, Edmonton's first municipal development plan uh, was, was published, published, I think in 1931 or 1933. And th- those were simpler times. So we had 11 zones um, <clears throat> and they were A, B, C, D, E. They were, they were lettered zones. I mean, today we've got something like 12,000 or some crazy number. It's, it's nuts. So, and it's, you know, we're, we're in the throes of rewriting our, our, our zoning bylaws because it's just gotten too complicated and unwieldy. But zone A, the, you know, the very first zone in the zoning in the very first zoning bylaw was the river valley and ravine system and it was enshrined as a park way back then um you know not to be developed so boy you know to how many you know almost 100 years ago the same those that same thing was valuable to edmontonians i love that and it continues which is i think 
I, and it also goes back to that when everything is connected and people are connected. Yeah. It's just such a powerful thing. One of the reasons I picked the neighborhood I picked is because I can literally get my bike. It takes maybe 10 minutes to like to cycle to the river Valley. And from there I can cycle to work. So I actually could, if I want, I mean, I don't because we've had some very inclement weather in the winters, but I can cycle from my house to work mostly in nature, which is wild given that I live outside of the ring road in Edmonton. That's remarkable. Yeah. Yeah. Good old Edmonton. So, I mean, obviously I'm a fan girl. I love, I love the river Valley so much. It's incredible. Okay. Final takeaways, anything you want our listeners to walk away from today, having heard from you? Oh yeah, be proud of Edmonton. If you if you if you're a listener who lives in Edmonton, it's a good place, you know. And and, and I think it's underappreciated by the people who live here. Well, there's there's uh, it provides opportunities that many many other places in the world don't can, can't even dream about. Guys, you heard it here from Mick Graham. Edmonton is cool. Anything else? That's it. This has been fun. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you so much for being on the Big Be- uh, Be Better podcast. Again, Mick Graham joining me today. Is there any way if our listeners wanted to learn more about you or find you in your professional world, where would they look for you? Well, I guess you could. Uh, I, I, uh, Are you I don't get. Uh, yeah, I'm on LinkedIn. That's right. It's the only social go. media I really participate in. I think Thank social you. media is weird. Um, <laughs> so that could be a whole new pod, another podcast. But um, uh, yeah, I'm on LinkedIn. So that was probably a good spot. Mick Graham. Excellent. M-I-C-K-G-R-A-G-R-A-H-A-M. And you can exactly. find him there. Thank you so much for joining me today. And right. I look forward to all the cool urban planning infill stuff you do in the future. Thanks, Clarissa. Thank you. Bye-bye. If this podcast has landed with you, served you, provided value, please let us know. Give us a like, subscribe, share it with a friend that you know it will make a difference for. We are here to be a contribution and a service to others. We cannot wait to see you next time. Thanks again for tuning in. Take care.